Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Morning. Morning, everybody. Hey there. Good morning. So glad you are here today. We're thrilled that you chose to be with us this morning. And like today is a perfect day to say this. You have to be early to get a seat in the back. It's like my hairline. It's like it's, it fills in back there and it's really thin up here. Um, but we're glad that you are here this morning. And uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've been taking some time in our services to hear from some of our leaders from some of our different ministries that are taking place on other days of the week besides Sunday. So we've already heard from our Celebrate Recovery team. We've heard from our Girls Ministries team. Today, we get to hear from the senior commander of Outpost 402, Commander Bob Barlow, who's going to come and talk to us about Royal Rangers. Will you welcome Commander Bob as he comes? Good morning. Mm, I thought I would have got more of a rousing ovation compared to the first service since your coffee has already sank in, but apparently not, but that's okay. We'll continue. All right. So Royal Rangers, what is it? First of all, it's a boys led ministry or boys driven ministry, kind of like Boy Scouts, but AG oriented. And it was formed in 1962 by Reverend Johnny Barnes. I wasn't around back then, but some of you might have been, I don't know. Um, and it's, prospered since then. It's international now. Some places across the, or across the globe have girls involved, but it's basically a boys-driven ministry. And we've been able to start our program officially here August 31st, 2021. <laughs> um, August 31st, 2021 was our official chartering, so we were recognized by the uh, Ranger uh, Commanding Office in Missouri, I think, somewhere. Don't quote me on it. Springfield, Missouri. And uh, since then, we've been able to have our meetings every Wednesday night, and we've begun to grow and mentor these young men. For those of you that don't know, the goal of this is, of course, to get these boys saved and ministered to Christ. It used to be the number one program across the country that got boys saved for Christ. I don't know if it's still there. I know it's up there. Um, But it's definitely a goal of saving these boys, leading and mentoring them by men in their, uh, as they grow through their teens and give them a godly opportunity to grow in Christ. Now, the goal, of course, is also to earn some badges. And as we learned first service, Pastor Phil was um, attracted by the female gender before he finished it. But we do have a couple gold medals in John Burke as well as both of my sons, uh, Caleb and Zachary, uh, earn their gold medal, and they keep track of these things, and you can actually look every one of them up on the website if you so desire. But that's our goal also as they start to learn and mature and mentor through this program to get them that gold medal of achievement. Now, I can't stress enough, I cannot do this by myself. I am very dependent upon all my commanders, and I thank them officially from here for all they do every Wednesday night um, as they teach and train these boys as well. And we can't do it without you either. Uh, You've heard from uh, Celebrate Recovery, Girls Ministries last week, and we saved the best for last with Roy Rangers. But um, we can't do this without you and your support. So from your ties and offerings, we've been able to open these programs, and I just want to say thank you for that as well. Um, Some of the things that we've learned as we've gone through this and seen boys grow, who was involved in the uh, derby last couple weeks? Three? Great. All right, all three of you had a good time. 
If you, if you weren't there a couple weeks ago, you missed out a great opportunity to play with Echo. Um, we had a great time, raced actually 42 cars, I think, from our um, church alone. And um, Wayne Robust, if you haven't heard, we'll have his name put on a plaque. We'll put it outside on the wall somewhere in the near future. Uh, he was the fastest car. We're going to try to do that every year. So if you, have the, you didn't do it this year, start thinking of a car that you could design to try to race next year. Uh, we also do other things like outdoor activities. We have um, not only a Pinewood Derby for the boys to do again later this month, but in May we go camping for the first time. And uh, Pastor said he's going to be there and support. I'll think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we also are going to go camping probably then as well as during the summer as the boys start to learn outdoor activities like building fires, throwing knives and hogs, not at each other, but at targets uh, with properly mentored and observed opportunities. And then uh, as they get involved in these things, that's really a lot of times what draws these boys into the program. And we use that as a way to bring them in, get them saved, and get them uh, mentored by the men in our group. So I just want to thank you for the opportunity to lead them. And we look forward to great things as you continue to support us and uh, pray for us. My sons love being involved in these programs, and if you have boys or grandkids or neighbors, nephews, um, bring them on a Wednesday night and let them just try it out one week. My boys absolutely love being here. My 10-year-old loves it that much that this year we have a conflict of scheduling on Wednesday nights between his baseball team and Royal Rangers, and I did not give him the choice, but he took to the decision very well to say that well, buddy, we can play baseball up to 6.30, but then we're going to leave and we're coming to church and I'm going to Bible study and you're going to Royal Rangers. He's like, cool, I love that I get to do both. And so um, it's a blessing when our children want to do things that we want them to want to do. And so I'm thankful to each and every one of the men who are investing into both of my boys' lives. Um, I take that role in their life seriously. I'm very careful about who... I let speak into the lives of my boys. Sometimes I have a choice in the matter. Sometimes I don't. And I know when my son comes home and he says, well, Commander Moses was talking to me about this or Commander John was talking to me about this or Commander Bob said, like, it's really registering. These young men are impressionable and I'm thankful that they are able to be brought up in a community of faith where what we're teaching that at home is being reinforced by other men that I can put them into those circles. And so thank you so much. Your generosity is a long way of going. Moving into this building was a big step of faith. Some of you were with us at that point, but we as a church voted unanimously to move forward and to say we're going to be on board with this and we will invest not only the funds and the giving to be able to do it, but we'll invest our time in these ministries and programs to people. So it's awesome. Just to give you a frame of reference, uh, two of the last three weeks we've had over 300 people be in ministry somewhere on this campus on a weekly basis, which is huge for us. That's double the capacity of what we were able to do at the high school. So we're really thankful for that. Let's jump into the book of Acts. We've been studying, studying Acts from the beginning to the end. We took a little bit of a break, but we started in chapter one and we've not skipped over anything. Acts If you like stories and you like history, Acts is an awesome book. It is history from the first century. And it's specifically focusing in on, it starts in one city. 
And then by the end of the book, we've crossed continents. So the story starts here, and it's like Luke who writes Acts. He zooms out, and he follows the activity, and it records the history of the birth of the church, the birth of Christianity, and how the news about what Jesus did through his life, death, and resurrection traveled from the city of Jerusalem into a worldwide global movement that has gotten as far as touching us today, 2,000 years later. The first part of the book, Luke shifts back and forth through different scenes and kind of shows you what's happening in Jerusalem, what's happened in Antioch, what's happening on Paul's missionary journey. He shifts back and forth. He follows Peter a little bit. He follows Paul. We are now in the part of the book where the pace really picks up. He moves fast because Paul never stayed in one place too long. And so this part of Acts that we're studying now is primarily focused on one guy and what he was up to. It's on the Apostle Paul. We're going to read from chapter 17 today. I want to just look at what happened 24 hours before we start reading. For some of you, this is review. Others of you, if you haven't been reading through Acts with us, no problem. This little one or two minutes of background information will give you all you need to know to understand what's going on here. 24 hours before we start reading here, Paul and Silas were in the city of Philippi, which is on the continent of Europe, which is amazing because this is the first time in recorded history that anybody with information about who Jesus was had set foot on European soil. And so they started in the city of Philippi, which was a very populated city, and they started teaching the gospel there, and um, they met uh, a group of ladies who were having a prayer service, and we see one of those ladies experience salvation. Do you remember her name from last week? Lydia, right? Businesswoman, entrepreneur, opened up her home and started a church right there in Philippi. Now, the reason Paul and Silas don't start off this chapter in Philippi is because things got very bad for them very fast. They uh, recognized there was a demonic spirit controlling a young slave girl in the city, and in the name of Jesus, they set her free. And when she was set free from that demonic spirit, that demonic spirit was no longer in her, giving her some demonic, satanic ability to tell fortunes. And so she was now economically worthless to her previous owners. And so those owners got upset, and one thing led to another, and they got revenge against Paul and Silas by drumming up fake charges against them, inciting a, a mob. And so Paul and Silas, you remember this? They were stripped of their clothes, they were beaten with rods, and they were thrown in jail in supermax prison. And then rather than go to sleep, they're locked up in stockades with their ankles and their wrists bound. And in the middle of the night, they are singing hymns and praise to God. And that's different from saying in the middle of the night, they were up complaining about how sore they were or begging God to let them out or crying for their mommy. They were singing about how good God was. That does not come from the outside. That comes from the inside. So they were singing these things. And if you remember, there's a localized earthquake the structure of the jail didn't fall apart, but all the doors swung open. All the chains fell off the prisoners. The jailer's about ready to kill himself because he knows if these prisoners escape in the morning, he's going to be executed anyway. Paul and Silas talk this guy off the ledge, 
share about Jesus with him. He is radically saved and converted. He believes everything they say. He repents from his sins. He takes them at night. He takes them to his house, stitches up their wounds. While he's there, he preaches, the, Paul preaches the gospel to everybody else in the jailer's house. The whole family comes to faith in Jesus. They all get baptized. They share a meal. And then in the morning, the police send word to let Paul and Silas go. And we have that little detail at the end of the story where Paul and Silas make the point of saying, no, we're not going to just let this be swept under the rug. At the end of the day, we're Roman citizens. You treated us illegally. We did nothing illegal. And before we leave the city, we don't want Christians to get the unfair label of being law-breaking, civilly disobedient people. We need a public, concrete admission of our innocence. And so they made sure they put that on the record before they left town. Now we're caught up. Here's what happened the next day. <laughs> this is crazy. So that, was, that was yesterday. This is today. I don't know about you, but if that was my yesterday, I'd be in the hospital. At least be a patient first, waiting in line or something. Right? I would be, I'd need to talk to a therapist. I'd need to take some PTO. You know, what type of treatment would you be offered if that was your yesterday? Well, here's what their next day was. Paul and Silas then traveled through the towns of Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Now, this next verse should come as no surprise to those of us who have been reading along. As was his custom, where do you think he went? He went to a, there was a Jewish synagogue, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue service. Here's what he did at the synagogue. You would love this. I can tell you right now, Echo, you would love this. He preached the same sermon every three weeks. For three weeks in a row, I'm sorry. And for three Sabbaths in a row, same sermon. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't you love that? For three weeks in a row, I just brought the same sermon over and over again. I don't do that now. So those of you who think I do that now, I don't. Okay, we keep it moving. He used the scriptures, there's three verbs here, to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved. So he reasoned, he explained, he proved what? That the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. Some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Some of those who listened were, do you see that word? Persuaded. There was some persuasion that was required for the Jews who heard this to go back into the scriptures they had studied since birth, many of them, and think of them differently in light of what Paul was teaching. There were, in other words, they had to be persuaded to leave some of their previously formed conclusions about their Bible behind in light of new teaching. They were persuaded and they became Christians. They believed, they repented, they were saved. Along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. So it's cool. One thing you see about the gospel, it doesn't care how much money you have, how little money you have. The gospel, it doesn't matter, man, woman, slave, free from the top, from the bottom, from the middle. The gospel, the foot of the ground is level at the cross. Every one of us needs Jesus equally in order to have the full life that he intended for us. So you see 
Religious insiders in the Jews were persuaded. Religious outsiders are people who grew up, they were God-fearing Greek men. They were people who believed in God, the God of the Jews, but they did not convert to all the Jewish customs. They believed, and quite a few prominent women. Again, Luke does not shy away about the role and the spread of the gospel, not just among men, but among women. He goes overboard to try and explain that. So what do we do with all this? I will tell you, if you go back to verse one, the fourth word of this chapter arrests me. Paul and Silas, do you see that next word? They were stripped of their clothes. They were beaten with wooden rods swung at an appropriate velocity of a cold-hearted Roman police person, and that wood struck bare flesh over and over and over again. They weren't just beaten, they were severely beaten. And Roman law did not have a maximum number of lashings that you could get. The Jewish law cut it off at 39. Romans didn't have that. So they are severely beaten. So what types of injuries may they have experienced? Broken bones, ribs, internal bleeding, at the very least lacerations and open wounds, right? Then they were thrown in jail. Then they were locked up. Then there was an earthquake that they went through. And then they got out of jail. And then they were released. Now, they had some minor medical care at one point. Do you remember that? Who, who at least put some antiseptic on their wounds? Jailer. That was their yesterday. If you experienced that type, I mean, heaven forbid, first of all, if you experienced like something that today, there would be marching in the streets, right? If you suffered that type of treatment today. But what type of medical treatment or recovery options would be extended to you if that happened to you yesterday? What would be available to you today? Hospitals? What else? Pain meds? Doctors? You know what PTO means? Personal time off? You think you'd get some time off of work? Nobody talking to me today? Would you get time off from work if you were beaten within an inch of your life yesterday? Yes! What do they do? Yeah, they go back to work. Do you know that Thessalonica is 100 miles on ground from Philippi and they covered it in a week? It's three hours and 13 minutes by car today. They traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, which is about halfway, and then they came to Thessalonica. How in the world did they do that? Maybe. Divine intervention. It could have been that God just miraculously healed their bodies. Don't you think Luke would have told us that though? In fact, when Paul thinks about this later on, you know, when, have you heard of the, the place Thessalonica before? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, somebody with me. Thessalonians, you know Paul later on in the New Testament writes a letter to this church here? Can I tell you what he wrote? What Paul wrote about what he remembered about this visit? 
1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He writes to the Thessalonians years later about what we're reading in Acts 17. You yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our first visit to you was not a failure. You know how badly we had been treated at Philippi just before we came to you and how much we suffered there. Yet, our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. So you can see we weren't preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery. You know what he's saying? We did not have the courage or the boldness to get up the next day after we followed what we thought God was telling us to do and we got beaten down. Have you ever had a thought that was a, you thought was a God thought and you followed what you thought God was telling to you and it did not result in fireworks and success, but you got beaten down? You know what most of us do when that happens? We tuck our tail and go home. Do you understand? This was not where Paul wanted to go. He wanted to go place number one. And he didn't go there. He wanted to go to Bithynia. And God said no. God said, go across to Europe. And he says, okay. And you know where it lands him a couple days in? Beaten, broken, and in jail. And the next day, he gets up and he keeps on going. How can any man or woman live like that? He didn't go. He didn't go because it's like, well, I already booked a room down there. I better get there. I already booked some events. We've got the concert venue filled up. I bet, you know, I was going to make an Adele in Las Vegas joke, but we won't do that today. You know, I got commitments already. He wasn't motivated by employment. Because some days you got to do that. You feel a little beaten down. You're like, you don't want to go to work today. You want to pull the covers over your head, but you go because you have to. How in the world can any human being do what they did? Maybe they were genetically superior. Maybe these two particular guys came out of the womb just built to be able to have broken bones and finish the race. There's nothing to indicate that. What's different about those two guys than you? Huh? Nothing! There's nothing. How did they do it? Paul tells you, God gave us courage. He gave us boldness. You know what that means? Paul says, I remember I couldn't manufacture the kind of courage and boldness I needed to get up after being beaten down and get back on the road and still preach the gospel three weeks in a row and climb back in the pulpit the next week and walk a hundred miles with broken bones and internal bleeding and all these other types of things. Walk with a limp up over hills into a town where I didn't know a soul and then go through this whole rigmarole again. He remembers later on, I didn't have the courage. I didn't have the boldness. But God gave it to me. There's nothing external that they had. It was all internal. What's different about the Holy Spirit they had then than the Holy Spirit you have today? Nothing. Why don't we live like that? Why don't we live like that? You know, most of us struggle a little bit. That's all it takes to cool us off spiritually. Just struggle a little bit. Have an argument. Something doesn't go your way. You get overlooked for something. Somebody you like doesn't like you back. Have a rough day at the office. 
have some repairs you weren't expecting, have some bills come in you weren't looking at. Some project you were working on costs more, takes too long, turns into 10 projects. That's all it takes for us sometimes to pull the covers over our head and go cold on Jesus. We don't press in like we used to. We don't talk to him like we used to. We don't listen. We don't meditate. We don't spend time in his presence. We don't, we don't let his joy fill our life and come tumbling out in the conversation. We get all kinds of distracted and just focus on the task at hand. That's all it takes for us sometimes. But I want to show you... I want to show you these two men, and I want you to watch what they do. And I want you to see the how, and I want you to see the why. I want you to know it is absolutely possible to live this kind of relationship where there's something internal that no beating can take away from you. There's something internal that no amount of starvation or loss can take away from you. They knew who they were. They knew whose they were. They knew why they were put on the earth. And they recognized when they didn't have the raw material they needed to get up the next morning that God could give it to them internally through his spirit internally the same we sung about it this morning with your eyes closed and hands up the same spirit that rose jesus from the dead dwelled in paul and silas first corinthians 6 17 says the moment you bring your belief through the grace of god in jesus to the lord and he saves you and you experience salvation. That moment it says, our spirits are united with his. This, our spirits become one. All of the contents of God's spirit are now available and alive inside of you. The same spirit that gave them courage lives in you. Lives in me. The same spirit that gave them boldness when they didn't feel like it. Lives in us. Why don't we see that? Why isn't this normal? This is where I got on a tangent in the last service. I won't do that today. I'll just offer you a few thoughts before I move on. One, it's not normal because we Westerners, those of us who are Westerners, we're not all Westerners, but we Westerners, we hate being uncomfortable. We do not like discomfort. We do not like to struggle, let alone suffer. How many buttons are in your car to make you comfortable? Heaven forbid you should be uncomfortable. Heaven forbid your kids should not get everything they ask for. Heaven forbid. If we can't handle even this much struggle, how are you going to handle suffering? Well, maybe that's just for some Christians. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. <laughs> this type of tenacity only manifests in the face of suffering for Jesus. Suffering and struggling are not the same things. I have no problem with my two boys learning how to struggle. Some of you think that's bad parenting. I think it's good parenting. Because how dare I think I'm doing right by them when I say, well, I struggled some growing up. My family struggled some growing up. I don't want my boys to struggle like I struggled. Do you know how selfish that is? You know what I'm really saying? I don't want to be the kind of parent who has to deal with the guilt of telling my boys no. Or saying, you got to do that yourself. Or son, this is just what's happening. Let's press through. Because you know what happens when you artificially remove struggle from the life of a child and you send them out in the world at 20? Think about that for a second. You know what made the character and those of us, you know what built our character? Struggling. 
That's what built our character. Not everything goes your way all the time. You know what? You pick yourself up and you keep on keeping on. You're not going to have everything you think you deserve. That's struggling. I have no problem letting my boys struggle. Now, it's hard to not want to intervene in some of those moments. But as Christians, Jesus did not promise you a life of no struggling. That's not Paul's gospel. That's not Jesus' gospel. Follow me. You know what his trail is looked like? What it looks like? Yeah. This type of boldness and courage goes where it's needed. And you need that for this type of suffering. Because you see, as a parent, I don't have a problem letting my boys suffer. But I am definitely not going to inflict. Or I, I'm sorry. I, as a parent, I don't have a problem letting my boys struggle. I'm not going to inflict suffering on them. That's a whole different ballgame. Suffering is unjust, undeserved, unfair. That's evil. That's the hand of evil. Evil is what you see going on in Ukraine. Suffering. These families fleeing. Everything. Apartment buildings being shelled and burned to the ground. That's suffering. Paul and Silas didn't deserve being beaten and thrown in jail. That's suffering. Paul calls it suffering. And he says... It wasn't that I'm just some superhuman apostle and I just, I'm just driven. It's my toughness. It's my, you interview an athlete, well, how did you play through a broken leg? I have grit. I have toughness. I want to win. Awesome. You can produce that. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, God gave me the courage to do that. God supplied the boldness. That didn't come from anything external. And that did not come from genetics. Because sometimes you and I need more than what we can make ourselves. We need supernatural to get us through. Why don't we experience that? Number one, we don't like suffering. We don't like discomfort. We definitely don't want to, we definitely don't want to struggle. And the other reason why is we don't want it. You have not because you don't want it. You don't ask. Why can't I walk with Jesus in that kind of power? Well, probably because you don't want to enough. You really don't desire it. I do. I desire it with all my heart. Do you know what to desire something with all your heart looks like? And does that match the way you're living right now? If, if you right now struggle to spend any time with Jesus on your own during the week, you are not ready for this lesson yet. If you struggle to surrender your time to the Lord, your gifts to the Lord, your finances. If, you, if, you can't, if you're still struggling in those areas and fighting God on that stuff, just don't get too deep into this yet. Because you'll never convince me that your deepest desire is to walk close to me. You have the relationship with God that you want. That's what you have right now. You have exactly as much of God as you want. No more and no less. They desired Jesus in a way that is different than the way most of us desire Jesus. And it comes tumbling out of them. When they're in prison, they're not second-guessing and whining and complaining about taking a few licks. They're praising the name of the Lord. Not because they knew it would be contained in a history book. It was the outflowing of their heart. If you want to walk closer to Jesus than you are right now, what in the world is stopping you? Something has to decrease. Something has to be reordered. Because you filled up every available part of your life 
with something other than Jesus. And to give him more space, you have to decrease, which means something has to be reordered, lowered, removed. You want to live like that? Then you have to desire it. Pastor, I don't know if I desire that, but I want, I want to desire that. Okay, here's the problem. If your desire is broken, then you need discipline. Discipline is a safety net for when your desire is broken. You know what discipline is for? Discipline is when you make yourself do something you should do that you don't want to do, you need discipline. I don't want to go to the gym, but I know I need to, so I go anyway. Well, you don't desire it, but you do it because of discipline. But you know what we really want? There's something better than discipline. It's called desire. That's when you want to do. Now, desire can be bad too, but the desire that I want to have in my heart is I want to do and to be the things that God wants me to do and to be. And so it doesn't depend as much on my discipline. It's driven and fueled by my desire. Let's keep reading. Let's keep reading. Three Sabbaths in a row, uh, we're still on verse, uh, three Sabbaths in a row, Paul preaches the same message to the Thessalonians. It shows how patient he is. He recognizes he's teaching something really different can't just race through this like Phil Nauer does. He has to slow down and give them time to process because these Jews had believed a certain way all their life about what the prophets said about the coming kingdom and the future king. So three weeks in a row, Paul teaches and he uses three different, Luke uses three different verbs. He says, Paul reasoned, which is from the Greek word to dialogue. Here's what he's doing. He's saying, you know, friends, Here's what, how I read the scriptures. Let's look at the same passage. And he, he, he'd say, you know, Connie, what do you think? David, what do you think? Irene, how do you read this? Alicia, how do you see this? You know, Roberta, what have you always been taught about this? There is dialogue going on, which I know is foreign to our Sunday morning experience, but it was very common in Jewish circles to actually dialogue. He engages people actively. He's trying to engage their intellect. And also he's gathering information to know how he needs to tailor his teaching to go after different pillars where there might be some incorrect assumptions. Sometimes when you're really wanting to share the gospel with somebody, use dialogue as a tool to even know where to start. Just interact with people. Second verb is explained. That's the Greek word for to open up. So he's engaging them in dialogue, but then he's explaining. He's saying, let's go back into this passage in Isaiah 53 and let me open it up to you and maybe in a different way. And then the last word he uses, proved, which is the same word in Greek for persuaded. And this was the approach he had to take three Sabbaths in a row with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. He he dialogued with them about the Old Testament scriptures. He, he, I call it Old Testament. To them, it was the scriptures. He dialogued. He opened up. And ultimately, he persuaded. Take notes. You can write this down. Here's the simple gospel. It was always, it was two things. I'll give you a mathematical equation. Paul's simple gospel is who Jesus is, and that was the Messiah, plus what Jesus did for us. He suffered. He died. He resurrected. Every time... Every Sunday, or I say Sunday, that's not fair. Sabbath, we do our Sunday. Every Sabbath in the Jewish synagogues, if you follow through Paul's teaching, you'll see these ingredients. He wanted to make sure that they understood who Jesus was and what he did for us. That's it, the simplicity of the gospel. And so some people heard it and they got saved. Other people heard it and they got jealous. There was a great response and there was also a counter response. I can see I'm losing some of you, so let me move on here. Verse 5, some of the Jews were jealous, so they gathered some troublemakers. Isn't that awesome? 
They were jealous. Who's they? There's, Luke's making a distinction. There was a lot of Jews in the synagogue. Some of the Jews listened and were persuaded and accepted Christ. Then there was the group of Jews that listened to what Paul said but disagreed with his theology, disagreed with his doctrine, and didn't form the same beliefs that he did. And they said they were jealous. So you know what they did? And you know what they did thinking they were in the right? Because if they were good Jews, they believed that the Lord our God is one and they loved him with all their heart, soul, and mind. And with that as their foundation, they didn't see a problem with their jealousy and they also thought it was wise to go outside the synagogue, find people who we just know as troublemakers. If I asked you to go round up some troublemakers, would you know who to go to? Please don't point at anybody. <laughs> well, where do they get the troublemakers from? From the marketplace. They form a mob and they start a riot. Luke's making a clear point here that the origin of the mobs and the civil unrest in Thessalonica is the same way it happened in Philippi. It was not that the Christians went into town and started causing problems and started raising riots. It was always animosity from the other side. And he's making it very clear that we understand that Christians all through this part of history were starting to earn a reputation as being troublemakers, lawbreakers, mob formers, and rioters. And Luke's saying that was never the problem. That was the spin of the media. He goes back and he says it was literally the outsiders who caused problems, who stirred up riots, and then things went off from there. They attacked the home of Jason. We don't know anything more about him. Um, I guess Luke originally wrote to a Greco-Roman audience, so... It's likely that he assumed all his readers knew who Jason was. He was, we learned later on, he was one of the brothers. So likely a believer who opened up his house to the first church in Thessalonica. He was probably a part of the synagogue. So think about it this way. It's kind of like, you know, Paul was in the church preaching and then he preaches a different doctrine and half the church says, we're running you out of town. And so, you know, Paul leaves and so does a third of the congregation and the head deacon opens up his house and they start a church in his home. That's probably what happened here, to, you know, in, in modern talk. They were looking for Paul and Silas so that they could drag them out to the crowd. However, for whatever reason, Paul and Silas weren't there. So we keep reading verse 6. Not finding them there, they dragged out Jason and some of the other believers instead and took them before the city council. Things are ex escalating quickly. Let's read verse 7. Paul and Silas caused trouble all over the world, they shouted. My question, how did they know that? <laughs> CNN. Fox, MSNBC, what was that? Snopes? No, no, not Snopes. Don't go, don't go to there for your news. But um, yeah, yeah, who knows? Who knows? You know what they're doing? They're lying. They're exaggerating. They've caused trouble all over the world. My question is, like, draw a picture of the world, how big you think it is. <laughs> it's this big, right? And now they are here disturbing our city too. That's not true. And Jason has welcomed them into his home. That is true. They are all guilty of treason against Caesar. Not true. For they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus, Bullseye. So there's this crazy back and forth going on 
What effect does it have? Verse 8, the people of the city as well as the city council were thrown into turmoil by these reports. So the officials forced Jason and the other believers to post bond and then they released them. Luke, make sure we understand Paul and Silas didn't stir this up. These were the people of the city who did not like what they were hearing and so they turned on them and caused a riot. Chris, there, I, I read a great quote, quote in one of the textbooks. In other words, Christianity and its adherents are not instigators of civil strife. Rather, those who oppose them are guilty of this grievous offense. The growing mob here, not interested in justice. They're interested in violence and punishment. They carry out an unwarranted raid on Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas. They don't find the missionaries, so they seize Jason and some of the other believers who were meeting in the house, and they drag them to the city officials. And there they make a false charge against the Christian community. They say, Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, and now they've come here. And you see, already Christianity is developing an unfair reputation for causing civil unrest. But Luke is carefully documenting that the responsibility for the unrest in each city they visited thus far lies not with the missionaries, but with the locals. But now here's where it gets interesting. Because apparently... These people grabbed on to some type of content Paul was teaching. And they're using his own words or trying to use his own words to drum up treason charges. They say, they say this, they're guilty of treason against Caesar for they profess allegiance to another King Jesus. Now these dishonest Jews are playing into the Roman mindset of distrust, and they had a great fear of revolt that would be incited by this type of teaching and terminology. And in the Roman Empire, treason was the worst type of crime imaginable. But here's something fascinating. This means that the people who sat under Paul's teaching said, this guy has come into the town and has the nerve to talk about another kingdom. Now, in the Bible, I want you to know one of the terms, one of the ideas one of the concepts that God and the writers of the Bible use from the beginning of the Bible to the end to try and help us understand who God is, what he's like, and how we relate to him is the term kingdom. Now, I don't want to lose you here. Who is in charge of a kingdom? What's the job title? Okay, thank you for the six of you that are with me. A king is in charge of a kingdom. The king's domain. That's where we get kingdom. Kingdoms have borders. A domain. A king has something really important. A king has power. A king has influence. And in a kingdom, the king has the power to impose what he wants on the culture, on the behaviors, and on the customs of the lives of his citizens that live within his borders. That's what any king in all of history has. A king has power to impose their will, their value, their customs on all the citizens inside their borders, and to also say, if you're not going to line up with the king's will, you can't be a citizen of this kingdom. Here's what these guys are saying, here's what, here's what they're, they're saying. They're saying, Paul and Silas have the nerve to pledge their allegiance to another king. And I want you to know something. You and I inside of God's kingdom, we pledge our allegiance to the one king. The king of kings. God wants us to understand that his culture is like a kingdom. 
and I'll give you this in an application form. In God's kingdom, King Jesus puts his values into power, which produces a radical upside-down way of living in the lives of his people. The original Greek language actually says here that these men have gone around turning the world upside-down. Now, that's a pretty interesting confession. I'd like to say they're turning the world right side up. Because when you come into God's kingdom, through his spirit and through his power, he plants in your spirit his kingdom values. And they are completely the reverse of the world's values. He plants in us things like if we want to be great, we become a servant. He plants in us things like it's not enough to just love those who love you. We love and pray for and serve with compassion our enemies. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. When Jesus established his kingdom, look, go turn on the news and look at another evil king who wants to expand the borders of his kingdom. How's he doing it? Conquest, savagery, lying, brute strength, suffering, running over people, loss of life, killing others. He's defeating and squashing by taking the life away of his enemies. You know how Jesus brought his kingdom in the world and why it sounded so stupid to the original hearers? They're talking about a king who died. He didn't kill his enemies, he died for them. He didn't run them out of town, he was lifted up on a cross. He didn't come with force, he came with truth. And now these men say they serve another king. Yeah, they do. I want you to know God is everything he says he is, but one of the ways we know God is as the king. And if you are a citizen of his kingdom, then you have his values and his power stamped upon your life in such a way that it should be producing gradually, day by day, a radical reversal of values. That is the opposite of the way that the world lives. How in the world could someone like Paul and Silas be willing to continue to walking down this trail of suffering only if the King of kings and Lord of lords has stamped something in their heart that says, I don't value protecting my life. I value carrying the gospel. All their values went backward. They're not going to run to safety. They're running into danger. They're not looking for comfort. They're willing to be uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel. I've lost some others of you. Let me finish. 17, 10 to 15. That very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. So the church in Thessalonica recognizes there's a manhunt going on. And it's that serious that they have to send Paul and Silas away at night. This was obviously of security concern for them. When they arrived at Berea, where do you think they went? Went to the synagogue. Again, same people that have been beating, same people that have been running them out of pulpits for cities now, they go right back there again. They're either crazy or they're awesome missionaries or a little of both. And the people of Berea, now here's cool, Luke compares one congregation to another. We've got to be careful here. But he's saying Paul traveled enough to know there's different kind of temperatures in congregations and he's comparing this congregation to the last one. He compares the Berean congregation favorably to the Thessalonican congregation. So let's see, let's see which things um, he, he points out. The, 
the, the quiet room is going to be over, overflowing today. <laughs> we need a bigger quiet room. Just so you know, that never, ever, ever, ever bothers me. Bring your kids. Bring your kids. Bring them here. You don't ever have to be ashamed or embarrassed about your kids being kids. Heaven forbid. My kids are kids all the time. Right now, they have their fits back there. That's just because they're older, okay? But you bring your kids here. We love them, and we're glad that they're here. I don't want you to ever feel embarrassed or upset about that. That's forming something in their mind, seeing mom and dad here at church. You're, you're building patterns in their life that they won't get now, but it's, trust me, those seeds you plant will grow. I promise you, they will grow. They will grow. They will grow, okay? That very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. I've got six minutes. Let's finish this up. When they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue, and the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, so there's one difference. Two, they listened eagerly to Paul's message. I don't know any pastor who is disappointed when people listen eagerly. They listened eagerly. Then here's what they did, though. This is awesome. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. Yeah, they fact-checked the speakers. That is, that's, that's solid right there. Fact check everything I say. If it's wrong, help me. Not if you disagree, but if it's wrong. You understand the difference? Well, that's not what I've been taught all my life. Well, that's not my problem. Show me. Are you saying you're never wrong? No, I'm never intentionally wrong. Does that make sense? I don't get up here thinking, "Mm, I don't think this is accurate. Let me preach it like it is. I'm bringing to you as I understand things at this point in my life right now. I also realize we can look at the same verse and the same word and read it two different ways and not get on the same page. I get that. But you know where they went? They didn't, they went to the scriptures. Thank God they didn't have YouTube and 37 other pastors' sermons to, you know, that's going after milk. Go after meat. Sometimes you don't just need to get what other people have digested. Go wrestle with it for yourself. Come on. Like, this is what's going to get you there. I don't want you to just come, well, this person says, and you got all your sources. Good, that can help you. And there's a point where we all rely on that. But you've got to go in and wrestle with this too. And guess what? The Holy Spirit will come right alongside you and help you. It's amazing. They searched their scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. So they're open-minded, they're eager listeners, and they're fact-checkers. And look what this led to. As a result of what? Those three things. Here's a recipe for spiritual growth in your life. Do you listen to the word of God eagerly? Do you keep an open mind to hear what teachers have to say? And once you've listened eagerly and you've kept, well, if I keep my open mind, isn't that gonna sway me to the left or the right? Not if you do the third step, then go back and think about it some more and check it against the scripture. Then you don't have to worry about keeping an open mind. I keep an open mind. I let things go in my open mind. If it doesn't line up with the Bible, I push it right on out. If I'm not sure, put it on the back burner, think about it some more. Because one of two things is going to happen. Something I was utterly convinced of is going to be tested, and it's going to be like, ooh, that's a little weak. I never thought that about before. I better test that some more. Or you're going to introduce a new idea into my open mind. I test it against something I believe from the word, and it holds strong. And I say, I'm even stronger in that belief because it's been tested and tried. Many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. Women even get listed first here. He's not shying away from it. And I'm like, finally, this awesome church. Well, it's a synagogue. Now it's a church. Verse 13. (laughs) This is crazy. When some Jews from where? That's 50 miles away. Some Jews from the last city learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea. They went there and stirred up trouble. I hope you're not the type of person 
that you have such beef with somebody that even once they try and just separate you, you track them down and you keep stirring it up. Let it go, man. Let it go. Don't. And these are Jews who thought they were doing this rightfully. Think of all the effort they're investing in this. So they traveled from Thessalonica to Berea and stirred up trouble. Verse whatever next one is, 14. The believers acted at once, sending Paul on to the coast while Silas and Timothy remained behind. Now that's interesting. Those escorting Paul went with him, third person, all the way to Athens. Then they returned to Berea with instructions for Silas and Timothy to hurry and join him. We've got two minutes to make this point. No pressure. Here's the deal. Remember last week when we noticed the change in language? It started, the, the we passages, do you remember that? What did that indicate? Somebody that was here? That Luke stepped out of the third person into the first person. In other words, it looks like that Luke joined this group at Troas. Now we have Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. If you go back and read through this story, you'll see that it was all written in the first person until Paul, Silas, and Timothy leave Troas, and now it's written in the third person. Indicates Paul left Luke behind at Philippi, most likely to help this brand new baby church who had, what, two days, three days, maybe a week of Paul's ministry. They're new Christians. And Paul says, you know what? I really need a doctor with me. But you know what's more important? These baby Christians need to make it because it's, it's not enough to just cross the line of faith. We need to disciple these people. They're not going to make it. So he leaves, likely leaves Luke there. Now, he's all the way over to Thessalonica, then to Berea. It's not safe for Paul, so they send him on. But Paul, who probably could have really used some buddies at this point, tells Silas and Timothy, you wait here. You keep discipling these people here while he goes on. You know what I see about Paul? Let me leave this as your application point, as the last one here. There's more to Christianity than just signing up. We have to be discipled. Now, how do you get that from this? Paul prioritized discipleship to his own detriment. Rather than keeping these other three guys with him, Every time he comes into the city and he has new converts there, he says, you know what, let's not just leave these people here. Let's leave at least some believers who are a little bit more mature. Because here's what Paul was all about, being discipled and making disciples. And making disciples who can make disciples. He didn't have the luxury of just going out and saying, well, our, our church has grown by 30 people today. We need to go hire another pastor to disciple them. He didn't have that. And if he and Timothy and Silas and Luke left town, who's the most mature Christian there? Well, whoever had been saved, I don't know, two days, three days, four days. It wasn't enough for Paul to just blow into town, preach some really tough messages. Spirit of God comes down, he sees a bunch of salvations, and then he blows out of town and never thinks about him again. I want you to see there is a deep core conviction in Paul's life that as Christians... We must be discipled. We must, what is discipleship? It's becoming a little bit more like Jesus every day. It happens 
through exercises in your life, like studying the Bible and prayer and meditation and worship and giving. It happens through relationships that you have, like a Paul that you look to as a spiritual mentor, a Barnabas, somebody who's traveling with you spiritually about in your same place, that you, a friend you can talk to spiritual things about. A lot of us even have a Timothy, somebody who looks to us for spiritual leadership, whether that's wise for them to do or not. We're the most mature believer that they know. It happens in moments and experience, like God moments and gospel moments, where we recognize in the middle of the day God's real presence and it means something to us, or God opens up an opportunity for us to have a spiritual conversation that we didn't see coming. And it also comes through using our gifts and our talents for God's kingdom. It comes through the way that we serve. That's how discipleship looks. That's the effort we put into it, through our relationships, through our spiritual disciplines, through the gifts that we use, through God moments and gospel moments. That's what it looks like. And he knew at this point there were no resources. There was no right now media. There was no traveling pastors. There was no discipleship program. There was no what's next box. There was no Royal Rangers, Girls Ministries. He had none of those things. You know what he had? He had a team of four, and now it was a team of three, and now he goes down to a team of one. I will go on by myself, even though I need some human beings around me to help me and support me, encourage me, and tend to things. It's more important that these people in Berea have some seasoned believers there to walk them through. Friends, that's how the church is still supposed to grow. Not professionally from the top down, but congregationally. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Disciples have to be made. Where are you in that process? Do you desire and do you want to know Jesus better than you do today? Do you desire... Do you want to have more of his power and confidence in your life? Do you desire and do you want to live a Christian life that's not dull and boring and drudgery? Do you desire and do you want to be used to share with more boldness and confidence the stories of Jesus? Do you desire and do you want to feel the power of the Holy Spirit operating in your life every day? Do you desire, do you want that? If you want that, what in the world is preventing you from it? What do you have to lay down today? What has to be reordered? What has to change so that you can leave the land of spiritual comfort and move into the beautiful, mysterious land of the unknown in Jesus? Let me pray over you. Will you bow your head and close your eyes? Brent, will you come to the keyboard? I'll be honest, like sometimes between 9 and 11, it feels so different. I can preach the same thing and it feels different. Today, I felt like I was in the first service. It was like just dropping seeds in soil. In this service, I feel like I'm hitting, I'm a sledgehammer against rocks. And that's, I don't mean your rocks on the sledgehammer. That's really insulting. I just mean like it just feels like there's resistance today and I don't know where or why. Please don't take that personally. It's not meant personally, it's meant spiritually. I just hope that maybe Holy Spirit, you can clear a path in the atmosphere right now, not for my words to go in it, but for the seed of truth you're trying to get through to somebody. The enemy does not want you to hear this today. The enemy does not want you to choose or decide anything today. Thank you, Lord. I feel your peace just, open, just clearing a lane. So here's the thing. You want to come into God's kingdom today? I want to invite you in. I want to invite you in. What do I have to do? Glad you asked. Believe and repent. Believe? Yeah. To be utterly convinced. 
Because in a moment, I'm going to lead you in a prayer of confession. Confession is just simply you putting into words what you really believe. That's different from repeating. You can repeat anything I say and not believe a word of it. And all that is is a formula or a magic trick. I'm not giving you abracadabras today. But if you're utterly convinced that Jesus is everything he says that he is, and that you're everything he says that you are, that we're sinners, that we can't fix ourselves, that we're broken, that we need to be forgiven because we are at odds with God, we owe him, we are guilty under his law. And you know and you're utterly convinced that what Jesus accomplished for you on the cross is the way to God. He took your punishment in your place and God accepted the penalty and the premium he paid for you. And now he presents that to you and says, if you are willing, I will credit my son's payment to your account and bring you into my kingdom on my terms with my values I bring you in because of grace not because you deserve it but because of grace and I will sit you around the table shoulder to shoulder with my son as a co-heir with him and if that's the way you want your relationship with God to be I want to invite you into God's kingdom the only way that there is and that is through Jesus and so I want to lead you in a simple prayer you can pray right where you're at right now dear Jesus I admit I am a sinner I'm sorry for my sins that changes today I need to be forgiven I want to receive forgiveness from you I confess, I believe in you, Jesus. You're God's son. You lived a sinless life. You died on the cross in my place. You rose from the dead. You're alive today. You are the Lord and I am not. From this day forward, I live with you as the king and I'm just a citizen. I'll live your way. Because I trust you to lead me, and Holy Spirit, I invite you to come live in me. Change me both instantly and gradually, both right away and day by day. I look forward to where you're leading me. Amen. Keep your eyes closed for one moment. If you prayed that prayer with me and you meant it, God heard it, you are gloriously saved. I just want to encourage you as a personal favor. This is not required by the Bible, but just something we like to do here as a family. If you prayed that prayer with me, I'm asking people just to close their eyes to respect your privacy. But if you prayed that prayer with me, I'm going to count to three. If you prayed that prayer, lift up your hand, make eye contact with me. You can put it right down. I just want to congratulate you because this is why we do what we do. It's for moments exactly like this with the decision you just made. So if you prayed that prayer, one, two, three. Anybody pray that prayer with me today? Awesome. Thank you, my friend. Anyone else? Awesome. Eyes still closed. I want to give you an opportunity. At some point today, you felt the Holy Spirit drawing you into a, I'll use the word, deeper relationship with him. He's calling you out of being spiritually comfortable. 
into just a new place spiritually, new levels of seeking and understanding and obeying and pursuing Jesus. And you may not even know exactly what that's like, but you sense God tugging you in that direction today. I just want to be praying with you because I know that comes with the cost and that discomfort usually comes quickly and we second guess these moments. But I want to... I want, I want you to know I'm in there with you. I've said yes to Jesus on that appeal in my own life. And I'm, in, I'm enjoying what I'm learning in this new season. And it has come through struggle. And I don't know if it's suffering, but it's come through struggle. But I'm, I'm having breakthrough after breakthrough spiritually. And it's been one of the most liberating seasons of my life as old things that occupied too much of my identity and stress life have just dissolved. And the pleasure of enjoying Jesus in the day-to-day has been my new oxygen and I just want to invite you, if you feel Jesus tugging on your heart, I'm looking around because I want to pray with you. But if that's you, would you slip up a hand that I could just be praying with you? Awesome. Thank you. Anybody else just say, I feel Jesus tugging me in that direction today? Awesome. Some of you are raising both hands. That's awesome. I would be doing the same thing. Awesome. Thank you. Praise Jesus. All right. Thank you, Father, for what you're doing in our lives. You're a good God. You're a good God. If you want to raise your heads and open your eyes, worship team is going to come and join me. Our prayer team is coming into place. I want to share with you a 90-second video. It came to me late this week, so I apologize for not having more advanced time to know how to send this up. But it's a message from one of our uh, national directors of the Assemblies of God, which is our denomination, with an update and an appeal for how we can pray and rally together our giving as a denomination to help with uh, the humanitarian crisis as a result of Ukrainian refugees fleeing Ukraine and tumbling into eight other European countries. So we're going to show this video to you. I'll give you an appeal at the end of that. Then we'll receive our offering. We're going to pray together and then we'll head our separate ways this afternoon. But let's watch this video. I want to share an update on the Ukraine situation with you. The conflict in Ukraine is intensifying and civilians are increasingly at risk. Hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians have been internally displaced. An estimated 800,000 have fled their homeland to neighboring countries. The UN Refugee Agency refers to this as the worst European refugee crisis this century. Our national church partners and global workers are serving the refugees and trying to meet their basic needs. AGWM and national churches are working in eight countries around and in Ukraine. In addition, fervent prayer is essential for this situation, for our workers, the national churches, and of course, the refugees. Thank you for interceding on their behalf. In fact, please join me right now. Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, we ask you to bring peace into this conflict, into this war, and peace into the hearts of leaders and the people in and surrounding the Ukraine. And we ask this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. 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 If you're willing and able, will you stand with me today? I, um, I, our finance administrator is out of town this weekend, and so I did not have time to sit with her yet and get the digital side of our giving engine uh, prepared for this. But give us 24 hours. We'll have that ready to go. Um, we do have, and I have another email from, I won't read you the whole email because of the time, but I have another email from um, uh, Superintendent Doug Clay. I received it because we've been to a church that has helped in relief efforts in the past. The largest relief effort we coordinated as the Assemblies of God through Convoy of Hope was at the, after the 2004 tsunami in Indonesia. And that 
we had to be working in four different countries to stage this. In this case, we're working with eight different countries. Specifically, we have staging areas set up in, let me find this part of my email here, so I'm not saying it off the top of my head. Um, Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, the Czech Republic, Moldova, Lithuania, and Croatia. We have Assemblies of God churches there and partner churches that we're working with. We have missionaries there. We have Convoy Hope Europe there. The specific needs, uh, the specific... We are, are working with the more than 1 million people that have already fled Ukraine. Unprecedented relief need is for gasoline, which of course is super expensive right now, to help transport refugees from the border of Ukraine to our Pentecostal churches throughout Poland and other surrounding areas that are feeding and housing them. And uh, they also are providing uh, purified water, food, clothing, and other tangible relief needs. It's the largest effort we've ever undertaken. So we obviously want to give you the opportunity to join with my family in giving couple different ways you can do that. I realize most of us don't bring cash and checks today. If you did and you want to give that way, just make sure on the envelope you just write, uh, you can write just the word Ukraine or missions Ukraine. Give me 24 hours so that we can get, those of you that have given online know on our give online page, there's a drop down tab where you can designate where your funds go. And we're going to add a designation that will say uh, either, it will say missions dash Ukraine or Ukrainian relief. Just look for the word Ukraine. 100% of those funds are simply just going to go right from our accounts right to their account. If you'd rather just bypass us, there's a QR code there um, that you can scan um, now and later. We'll make sure we get it out on social and everywhere. I'm not. However, if you feel led at all to give, to be inconvenienced, to make some sacrifice in order to, however you need to get that there, we want to make all those avenues open and obviously continuing to pray. This is about God's kingdom. This is about our brothers and sisters. This is about us being willing to be inconvenienced, uh, to struggle a little bit maybe for some of us to give in such a way that some people who are suffering can have some relief. So thank you for your continued faithfulness in giving. I'm going to pray over the offering. Our prayer team is here. Worship team is going to lead us in a closing song. If you'd like prayer during this last song, please come up to the altar and we'll be happy to pray with you. Then Pastor James will come. Heavenly Father, you're so good to each and every one of us. We love you. We worship you. You've been, you know, we as a congregation are facing our own financial decisions and stresses and pressures. And God, today we're just going to, I'm going to leave that in your hands. I'm going to leave, I know staring at a spreadsheet for days on end isn't going to fix it. You're up to something. We just want to do blessable ministry. More importantly, there are brothers and sisters in another part of the world that don't even have a church to be in today. Father, I pray you speak to all of our hearts about doing what we can to help in this crisis overseas. We ask all these things in the marvelous, matchless name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.